Chapter fourteen of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Bairn's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fourteen. My new job. A typical day's program. How fragments are evolved. I discovered in the morning that the Colonel maintained an office in the place. What had been a sort of jam and pickle storeroom had been given over to us, and in these I found the Colonel writing at one table by the window whilst a youthful clerk encased in khaki was toiling at a tall sloping desk on which was strewn all the inevitable impedimenta of a military office. Blue forms, white forms, buff forms, and buff slips all were here. A gaudy assortment of colored pencils and rubber stamps, files, and OHMS envelopes. In fact, everything that can bring joy to the heart of a quartermaster sergeant or an orderly room clerk. Now I am sorry to say I'm very poor at this sort of thing. In fact, it might be said, rotten. So I saw at once that to stay efficiently in this new job of mine without incurring the odium of British militarism, I should have to buckle to and pump up as much knowledge and enthusiasm as possible over all these buff slips and indent forms. The colonel, it appeared, came down very early and did a bit before breakfast as he had to be out so much in the day. So I made a mental note. I must do the same. I turned over a variety of papers dealing with the work until breakfast was ready and tried to get the hang of things. The colonel at breakfast amplified my scanty knowledge by giving an outline of the job. It appeared that he was responsible for discipline on all the communications in the area, approximately between Doulon and Amiens. I was to be his adjutant, as it were. Each army has an administrative commandant and each one of them has a staff officer. Now I do not want to be confused with the real staff officer. By real I mean those on corps, divisional, or brigade staffs. They are all combatant officers. My job was now on communications. I had got from strafe to staff, and this was as much staff as my physical ability at the time would permit of. I was a staff officer right enough, as per book of the words, but I never can consider anyone quite the real thing, quite the neat stuff, who is in any job other than the active strafing department. Of course an army must have people behind it. If you took the ASC away, the army would be done in a week. Anyway, this job was as much as I could do, and I soon found that it was going to provide me with a view of the war such as I had never had before. After breakfast, the colonel ordered his car round, and we both started off for one of the daily jobs. He had chosen Montrelay as his headquarters, as it was about central for the whole area he had to see to. This day we had about twenty miles to go, and this was my first view of the Somme country, a country shortly to be made famous by our mighty effort, the Battle of the Somme. It was very hot and dusty. The car buzzed along through long poplar-lined lanes and in and out of ramshackle dusty villages. The colonel, with a map spread on his knee, would every now and then shout instructions to the driver. Sometimes we were on a broad, wide high road, passing a whole stream of giant motor lorries taking supplies to the dumping grounds, and at other times going slowly through a billeting village crammed with dusty, khaki-clothed soldiers resting from a spell in the trenches. As we neared the front, all the villages seemed to be hives of soldiery. The land seemed alive with men in khaki, and out in the fields vast groups of horses were tethered or limber stacked in rows. Dust and ponderous motor traffic everywhere. Mile after mile we sped on through this varied scene, and now we were approaching the place we were making for, a certain railhead. 
what horrible dry dusty uninteresting places railheads are and how fearful it must be to be an rto imagine a paltry french wayside station for a home a railhead is a place where stuff of any description for the front arrives and is subsequently taken over for distribution by motor lorries and wagons the station selected may be small or large it all depends on the position of the trench line in that area if the station is small then an army of assorted huts springs up round it and in these lurk the individuals who operate the railhead presiding over this industrious scene is the railway transport officer or rto he is usually selected from the ranks of those who have done their bit and are fit only for something a bit milder than life in the trenches it all depends on the railhead as to what sort of a time this cove has some railheads have a frenzied hour's work a day when everything seems to happen at once after which there is nothing to do but take pride in the dandelions on the siding or get on with the latest e phillips oppenheim sent out from home other railheads never leave off being a pandemonium day or night six howitzers arrive from the sinai peninsula at four o'clock in the morning or an army corps of portuguese infantry are passing through and have to change at midnight the railhead we visited the morning I write about was a cross between the two. There was a good bit of ammunition work to see to there, and that is a more regular sort of occupation. We stopped the car by a goods shed and the colonel and I got out. The colonel was monarch of all railheads. They were one of the units under his command. I trailed along beside him absorbing the scene and trying to learn the job for the future. I looked around at the huts and at the station. A face, distorted by the hate of many inquisitive interruptions, suddenly appeared at a window and hastily disappeared again. I guessed it was the RTO, and I was right. The door of the hut opened and this potentate came out. We now, all three, had to evince an interest in the deadly dull details of the railhead. I have, of course, percolated through a host of railheads, so I will describe not an individual, but a typical one. A railhead nearly always gives you the impression that it is a station which the railway company had been disappointed with and have readily given away to the military authorities. It mostly consists of apparently inconsequent sidings, no platforms, and a row of uninteresting huts. It appears to be always a kind of derelict terminus in a 40-acre field. When it's not raining all day, this enthralling scene is enveloped in an opaque cloud of dust. The occupation of the inhabitants, moreover, is most inartistic and soul-destroying. Counting truckloads of rusty howitzers or tins of jam, anxiously regarding a prodigious quantity of 15-inch shells and wondering when they can be got rid of, those are the daily joys and sorrows of the RTO and his assistants. Added to these activities, he of course worries over an interminable correspondence which he finds on many colored forms, chiefly buff and white which come floating into him from all parts of France and from every angle imaginable. For instance, we have as yet received no news of the trench mortar dispatched from Khartoum and last seen at Abbeville, etc. Or, regarding your indent for a drinking trough for sparrows at your railhead, please state size. The colonel, the RTO, and myself, all three fully conscious of these dull and uninteresting shortcomings, but determined to serve our king and country, wandered round the railhead. The three parts played by the Colonel, the RTO, and myself were The Colonel 
to summon as much mailed fist and military severity as possible, and to frame cunning, terrifying questions to the RTO on the details of his work. The RTO. To attractively walk alongside the colonel and be ready with a plausible answer, with a substratum of truth, for everything, occasionally volunteering to show something which he had previously ascertained was in perfect order. Myself. To walk along looking as clever as possible, and refrain from letting the least sign leak out that I knew less than either about the job. And so these visits proceeded week after week, and after each inspection the Colonel and I would return across the miles of that sad bleak country back to our headquarters at Montrelay. During this time I employed all my leisure in drawing further fragments from France. Jokes that appeared week after week in The Bystander, how little people know where they were made, and how. It somehow pained me when I knew that the result spelt laughter to think how often the idea had come to me through the infinite sadness of the Somme Valley. In the evenings I have often wandered around a mutilated little village and gone off by myself to inspect the deserted and partially smashed church, or the silent weed-grown courtyard of an old farm, and have sat and reflected on the whole monstrous conflict, and as often as not with that same feeling that prompted me to smile during the Second Battle of Ypres. I have smiled here, and thought of a ridiculous and amusing situation. Amusing to those who know, because founded on truthful pain, but merely like comedy to those who don't and can't know. I have now emerged from the war, and look back on a vast sea of episodes and curious incidents, but nothing strikes me more forcibly than the various and extraordinary places in which I have drawn my pictures, in weird, safe, dangerous and unique spots, which range from the North Sea to Gorizia and the Austrian Alps, but of that anon. End of chapter 14. Recording by Philip Gould.